Hear the words of the Apostle Paul as he wrote to the church in Philippians chapter 3. Dear brothers and sisters, I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. One of the more common questions that I hear as a pastor has to do with how to know the will of God for our life and for a particular situation. I will tell you up front that knowing uh, the will of God is a theologically complex issue, but most times the steps in pursuing it are fairly simple. Sometimes it's just a matter of asking a series of questions, like, how is our relationship with God? See, the majority of God's will relates to who we are, not what we do. God wants us to walk in fellowship with him, and I'm convinced that this is part of the reason God does not drop in our lap some blueprint from heaven for our future, because we be tempted to depend on that blueprint rather than him. The second question we need to ask is, are we living in obedience to God? You see, it is sin that hinders our communication and our relationship with God. And if we've not done what God has already shown us to do, it's very unlikely that God will continue to show us what he has in mind for our future. God is not in the business of satisfying our idle curiosity or giving us the whole picture so we can decide whether or not we want to buy into God's plan. Third question, have we prayed about it? This seems to be an obvious question, but I am continually surprised by the number of people who talk to everyone but God about what God's will is for their life. Prayer can be hard work, but many people detour around it by asking a pastor or asking a lay person in a church or someone else for advice instead of praying about it themselves. And then the fourth question, have we weighed all the options? Most times when we've answered all the other questions satisfactorily, God expects us to use some common sense. He often works through the desires of our heart and the reasoning of our minds to reveal his direction. Identifying the options and prayerfully weighing the pros and cons can give us an awful lot of insight. Well, the next step in following God's will, then, is to get, get moving in a particular direction. And I've always believed that if, prayer, if we prayerfully move forward and ask God to close the door when we're headed towards something other than his will, God will do that. Now, what does all that have to do with leadership and being part of a new movement of God's Spirit? Well, when we're, do, when we're going through times of change, we instinctively, as human beings, slow down. Decision-making has a certain inertia built into it. We often get more pro uh, committed to protecting ourselves and our interests and opting for the path of least resistance than we do the path that offers the greatest progress. Or we'll endlessly review the options before proceeding, allowing a kind of paralysis to take hold. Part of the task of leadership is to reverse that trend and help us to see how we can move forward 
And as leaders help to get the ball rolling, this momentum gives commitment a chance to flourish. That's exactly where we find Joshua and the people of Israel as we revisit today chapter 3. All the preparations have been made to enter the promised land. All that needs to be said has been said. All that needs to be done to this point has been done. It's time to cross the Jordan River. Joshua understands the dynamics of spiritual leader, uh, leadership and movement. He doesn't just one day yell, everybody into the river, expecting that they're all going to move out at the same time. Rather, he orchestrates this, this transition according to certain principles that are equally relevant to the people of God today. And the first principle I call the ripple effect. We all know what happens when we throw a pebble into a pond. When it hits the water, the ripples begin to radiate from that point of impact. And this is a picture of how God works in the spiritual realm. Here's how we see it working in the story of Joshua. It was Joshua who had first received the vision from God and was challenged by God to be strong and be courageous. He then communicates this to his leadership, to his officers who went throughout the camp and prepared the people to break camp and move out. The priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant were to lead this processional into the Promised Land. Representatives from each of the 12 tribes of Israel were given a special role in this movement. And finally, all the people were invited to join. Joshua understands that even though the action being taken is God's will, it's important to align the various sources of influence in such a way that everyone could participate. This ripple effect is seen in many places, in businesses, in families. It's how priorities get communicated along with values and momentum, but the reality is that the ripple effect can either be positive or negative. And that's why I think it's important to ask ourselves sometimes, whose ripples are flowing into my life? Are these the influences that I want to shape my life? Remember, we are responsible to God for the things that we allow to fill our hearts and our minds. We also need to be asking, whose lives do my ripples impact? Am I being a good influence on other people? The influence that we have on the lives of other people is a sacred trust that belongs to God, and we need to carefully manage that. There is also a ripple effect that happens in churches. Uh, as God's vision spreads from maybe pastor or lay leaders to people in the congregation. However, the positive effects of the ripple are often crippled by the reaction of someone whom the congregation looks up to as a person of influence who uses his or her power to express their disapproval and make sure that the vision dies, all out of selfish or vindictive motives. And that's why a lot of churches never move forward. That's the negative ripple effect. But there's a way to make the ripple effect happen positively in any new venture of faith. It involves seeking God's will and making sure that something isn't being done for selfish motives or for the wrong reasons, but keeping a godly focus. And then effectively communicating that vision in many different, as many different ways as possible. Healthy churches 
experience a positive ripple effect. The second principle is called the threshold. Between the people of God and the land that God had promised them flowed the Jordan River. The time had come for the leaders to step in. As soon as their feet touch the water's edge, Joshua predicts, the waters will part. Chapter 3, verse 13 says, The priests will carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, and as soon as their feet touch the water, the flow of water will be cut off upstream, and the river will stand up like a wall. Now what Joshua predicts comes true as the people of God begin to move out. Look at verses 15 and 16. It was the harvest season, and the Jordan was overflowing its banks. But as soon as the feet of the priests who were carrying the ark touched the water at the river's edge, the water above that point began backing up a great distance away at a town called Adam, which is near Zarethan, and the water below that point flowed on into the Dead Sea until the riverbed was dry. Then all the people crossed over near the town of Jericho. You see, the miracle was dependent on their willingness to step in and cross the threshold. Now, I want you to hear a great spiritual truth. Between every promise of God and its fulfillment in our life lies a river that will test our faith. There will be an obstacle to overcome. And obstacles cause people to balk. There are multitudes of people who know where they are in life and also what God has promised them, but they are stuck at the river's edge, unwilling to step in. Lots of tremendous people are mediocre Christians because they lack the willingness and the faith to cross the threshold. It is the difference between knowing what decision to make and having the courage to make that decision. In the same way, many churches only go to the river's edge and no further. It's not, what, it's not that they don't know the promises of God. In fact, they may be full of people who pray earnestly and study the Bible diligently, but they're intimidated by the threshold. Whether it's financial or organizational or spiritual, so inertia sets in and the years go by and the ministry dies a slow death. Over the years, our church has encountered many such thresholds. There have been times of simple growth that didn't require a lot of commitment and the part of those who attended, but there's also been some times of sacrificial growth that included some inconveniences and some challenges for those in the congregation who were deeply committed. Some of these thresholds, I think, have been defining moments in our church's history. These were moments that required us having the faith to step into the river and take a risk in order to be part of what God was doing in this community. Many people find it easy to follow when things are easy. Even Jesus had great crowds of people who followed him, who witnessed his miracles and listened to his parables and didn't have to do a lot more than just receive the best that Jesus had to give. But a deeper level of commitment is not known until a church enters a period that requires a greater level of faith and risk. And some people bail when times are tough and when more is being asked of them than they want to give. And when sacrifice is required, some people 
tend to think about the future and whether or not they really want to be part of that. It's amazing how many people feel called of God to go somewhere else to church when they sense the sacrifice that's being asked of them is too great. This is part of the reason why so many churches find themselves on plateaus or in decline and their people in shallow walks of faith. Because crossing the threshold requires faith. And Joshua demonstrates the courageous faith necessary to move forward. His faith really comes in two stages. First, Joshua announces what God will do before God performs the miracle. Joshua has the courage to hear from God and then communicate the promises of God to his people, and that takes courage because he's publicly committing to a future in front of a lot of people before they've even witnessed God doing anything. And secondly, the people now need to take action on what's been heard and communicated, and all that needs to be said has been said. It's time for their faith to go to work. The threshold always involves risk. And the investment of Joshua's credibility here in this story is a leader, and once the threshold is crossed, his credibility is greater than ever before. And God exalts him in the eyes of all the people, just as God promised. And those of you who find yourself in a leadership role uh, in whatever you do, know that strong leadership is crucial to the startup of any new venture, so that the ripple of your influence can encourage other people. Leaders need to be among the first to step in when there's a threshold of commitment to be crossed. But there's one more dimension to keeping momentum um, of, your, of our vision going, and that is standing firm until the pro- project or the mission is completed. Look at verse 17. Meanwhile, the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Lord's Covenant stood on dry ground in the middle of the riverbed as the people passed by. They waited there until the whole nation of Israel had crossed the Jordan on dry ground. It was the steadiness of these priests that encouraged those whose faith may have been wavering when they crossed the river. Undoubtedly, the people passing through this river had doubts, had concerns. Some were probably thinking, hey, with my luck, as soon as I step in there, the river, the wall of water is going to come and give way, and I'm going to drown. In chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, we read that the people hurried across. They didn't waste any time over the threshold. It was a mad dash. Some of those who crossed may have been less than excited about this new venture, but their faith was strengthened by the priests, who their spiritual leaders who were standing firm. In the field of change management, there's something called the adoption curve which simply says that some people are more open to change than other people. Some people welcome change. Some get restless when change is not taking place. Others are committed simply to the status quo and resist any and all change. People in churches are located at various points on this change continuum. Aubrey Moffers, who's a writer and Christian author, gives us some insight into these groups. There's four types of groups. He calls the first one the early adopters. They generally make up 10 to 20% of a congregation. These are people who adopt new ideas quickly. They're open to change. They actually thrive on change. Sometimes they're even the ones creating change. 
The second group is the middle adopters, and they make up the majority of most churches, 60 to 80% of the congregation. This group is not very quick to adopt new ideas, and they initially resist change. However, once they've had some time to think about it and the value of that change, they may actively support it. The third group is the late adopters. This comprise, uh, comprises about 5 to 20% of the local church. And these are folks who actively resist change. And they'll only go along with something that's new and different once they see that the vast majority of people are moving in that direction. But they will also be among the first to return things to the way they were if the change process stumbles. And then the fourth group is the never adopters. This group can be anywhere from 2 to 20% of a congregation, and they will not embrace change no matter what it's for or how worthwhile it turns out to be. They'll drag their feet into eternity because they're committed to the past and they're committed to satisfying their own needs. I was tempted this morning to ask you to take out a piece of paper and evaluate yourself on this change process, but I won't do that. But I will tell you a quick story. After the first service this morning, one of our, our dear folks came up to me and she said, Rod, um, back in 1977, we as a congregation were moving out of the little downtown brick church out onto this piece of property to build the first building that was built on this site. And she said, I was one of the late adopters and I resisted the change. But I'm so glad now that, I, that the congregation made this move. I'm so glad that vast majority saw something that I didn't see. See, a couple of observations. Newer churches tend to have more early adopters and more established, uh, than more established churches. Um, that's the reason why startup churches tend to be more flexible about a lot of things. That's why they tend to have initially uh, a lot more growth. When selecting leaders, whether that's in churches or in your business, it, it pays to know the personality of the people that you're hiring. You see, growth can be inhibited by selecting people who are never going to move you forward. Or the opposite can be true. Stability can be threatened by people who are constantly looking for change. Leaders tend to spend too much of their time, surprise, surprise, with the never adopters. Why? Because they're off, often the proverbial squeaky wheel. But to move forward, it is much better use of your time to invest in the early and middle adopters. Anyone in a leadership role knows that transition times always make people a little nervous. People will seek out leaders who are committed to their vision who don't waver in their commitment, even when some refuse to accept the change. If leaders are consistent in their commitment, the nervousness of the people around you will begin to dissipate and their resistance will begin to fade. If you are a leader, people are watching you and your firm stand will help others to confidently move, move forward into the future. Now let me close this message this morning and this series by reminding us of where we started. Back in chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, we read the promise that God gave to Joshua when God said, be strong and courageous. 
Be careful to obey all the instructions Moses gave you. Do not deviate from them, turning either to the right or to the left, and then you will be successful in everything you do. Study this book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night so that you will be sure to obey everything written in it. And only then will you prosper and succeed in all you do. Now, churches are sometimes reluctant to think in terms of success, like there's something not spiritual about being successful. And yet in these verses, God promises to Joshua that he's, if he's faithful to do what God asks him to do, the goal will be success and prosperity. Too many churches justify their lack of success with pious platitudes like, well, God just simply wants us to be faithful. We may be small, but we're spiritual. It's quality that matters, not quantity. And while we know that God does value faithfulness in the lives of his people and, and churches, we also know that he expects us to call people uh, to commit their lives to Jesus Christ and to, and to teach things like biblical stewardship and to address things like declining attendance and talk about obedience to the Great Commission. Obedience to Christ is what brings blessing. And it is God's desire that we are successful. And then, because we're blessed, we learn how to bless others. And when the whole nation crossed the Jordan, God commanded Joshua to construct a monument consisting of 12 stones on the bank of the river, symbolizing the unity of the nation of Israel and the participation of each of the 12 tribes of Israel in the miracle that God had just done. These stones were taken from the middle of the river and would be forever a reminder of the miraculous presence of God. The people weren't supposed to stay there worshiping the monument. They were supposed to worship the God that it represented. You see, the finest symbols of success are the ones that transform a new ministry or a new program or a new movement of God into a spiritual legacy. The Monument of Stones would be a reminder for future generations that this event was a miracle of God. And when future generations would ask, what do these stones mean? This would be a teachable moment to emphasize the greatness of God. See, God works in our lives both to build faith in us and to be a witness to others. All that God has done in our past should encourage us to trust him for greater things in our future. Our staff and our leadership team continue to dream about the future that God has for us in this community. And we will continue to work on how to make those dreams a reality. And one of the things that has impressed, been impressed on my heart and mind for years is any success that we have uh, as a congregation is not because we're all that special. It points us to the power of God. God does what God does because... Uh, so that we will come to know him and give him the praise. Success always points us to the activity and the sovereignty of our God. We dare not rest on past achievements. What we can do, though, is be obedient and open our hearts and minds for whatever God is preparing us to be and to do in the next chapter of his plan for us. Over the last several weeks, I've shared with you a couple of those things that I think where God is leading us, and I'm going to continue to do that. Uh, you're going to hear more across the next few months. 
But I do believe that God is leading us to, uh, to do some new things in this community than we've done before. We cannot stand still. God is a God of change, and God is moving us in greater ways than ever before to be able to reach uh, more people for Jesus Christ in this community. And I'm excited to be part of that, and I hope you are too. Let's pray. God, lead us as a congregation into the future that you have for us. And if we get lost, call us back. If we don't listen, forgive us. Give us strength to do what you have called us to do and to be courageous. Keep preparing us for the next chapter of your great plan for us. We pray in Jesus' name.